Modern Love, the podcast, is supported by... BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Hey, modern lovers. We're dropping into your feed for a second time this week to give you a little extra love. It's an episode of another WBUR podcast, Endless Thread, hosted by Amory Sievertson and Ben Brock Johnson. Every episode features something extraordinary found on Reddit, the surprising, the mysterious, and the utterly human. This episode tells a story about processing grief and where we turn when the people closest to us don't seem to know what to do or say to help us move forward. Here's the show. Hey, just a heads up. This episode deals with the topic of death in a pretty detailed way. If that's not for you, maybe take a listen to something else from our catalog. I guess it's like the idea of like going through like a dark tunnel. You can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, but like you don't know where the tunnel ends. And so you just keep going through the tunnel until you get to the other side and you don't really know when that will be. But you just have to keep, otherwise you're stuck in the middle of the tunnel, right? This is TJ. She's a Redditor. And I'm a journalist. I'm 31 and I live in Brooklyn. I follow a ton of different subreddits from food to memes to RuPaul's Drag Race. And I am a part of a couple different feminism communities. I have a feminism tattoo on my middle finger. It's the Venus symbol. And um, I use that to flip off the patriarchy whenever I can. I know TJ because we both used to work for the same radio station in New York. And when I ran into her about a year ago... She told me a story that practically knocked me over about something that happened a few years back that has changed her life completely and how that change has played out on Reddit. Can you take us back to late 2016? What did your life look like then? Yeah, late 2016, I was living with my partner. We had been together at that point just a little over six years TJ doesn't want to use her partner's actual name. We talked about giving him a pseudonym, but considering the circumstances of all this, that felt pretty weird, too. So we're just going to call him her partner. I had relocated to upstate New York with my partner. Um, He had gotten a job, and I had the ability to work from home, and I kind of felt like, hey, like, I've never really lived outside of New York City um, in the the immediate surrounding area. So I said, like, okay, let's do it. Let's move upstate. So we'd been living up there for about a year and a half or so. We had, like, a really cute two-bedroom house with a literal white picket fence, a backyard. And our border collie, Smokey, we had gotten him shortly after we relocated there. Nice. Um, So, yeah, no, he's the best. Um, TJ describes her partner partner as being part of a big family from upstate New York. He grew up in pretty humble circumstances. He was one of the only members of his immediate family who left, went to college. 
She says he got out and made something of himself. He was ambitious. My partner, he worked um, as a golf course superintendent. Um, and it's funny, he hated golf. <laughs> he hated it very much. <laughs> he was like, I'm here to talk about the flowers. So he was like the Lorax, but for flowers? Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> when he and TJ met near New York City, they really hit it off. We had met when, how old was I? I was 22. We were both 22. And actually, like, this whole story has to do with, like, technology. Like, the way that my partner and I met, we met on Match.com, like, back when there was no app for it or anything. Like, um, OG Match.com. Yeah, we met, and I, we went on one date, and then we never were apart again. In all the photos we've seen of him, TJ's partner has this kind of boyish grin stretching from ear to ear. TJ says she liked his dry, slightly dark sense of humor. He was tall, blonde hair, blue eyes. The relationship was great. But about six and a half years after it started, in January of 2017, something happened. TJ's partner went away with some friends for the weekend. And when he came home, he told her, Oh, but I have like this really bad headache. And I was like, oh, that really sucks. Like, maybe you didn't sleep enough this weekend, you know. And I had made us dinner, and we were watching Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is a show that we liked, and uh, hanging out with the dog on the couch. And around 9 o'clock, he was like, you know, my head is killing me. Like, I'm going to go to bed early. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. I gave him some ibuprofen, and he went up to sleep, and the dog followed up with him. And, um... The next morning, her partner's alarm went off about half an hour before hers, like it always did. TJ was still half asleep. But I remember the alarm going off, and I said, baby, don't you have to get up? And he said, yeah, I'm I'm getting up in a minute. TJ went back to sleep for a little while, then started her own usual routine. I heard the sink running in the bathroom like I did every morning, and... I knocked on the door, and I said, you know, I heard the water running. I said, hey, hon, can I just come in for a minute? I just want to brush my teeth. And he didn't answer. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. I'm Amory Sievertson. And you're listening to Endless Thread, the show featuring stories found in the vast ecosystem of online communities called Reddit. We're coming to you from WBUR, Boston's NPR station. Today's episode... Shipwrecked. So TJ's partner is in the bathroom. The water is running, and TJ needs to brush her teeth. She doesn't really know yet that something is wrong. But her partner isn't letting her in. And so then I was waiting, and I knocked again really hard, and he didn't answer. And so then I just decided to open the door. And I opened the door, um, and he was face down on the bathroom floor and his ankle was twisted it looked maybe it was broken and uh he was face down and at first for a second I thought what are you doing asleep on the bathroom floor like and then I woke walked over to him and that's when I noticed his foot and I that was really concerning and I thought he tripped and like blacked out or something and I shook him um And I said, wake up, like, what are you doing here? And he didn't move. And then I looked closely at his face, and his face was blue. And that's when I knew, like, oh, my God, something is wrong. 
At first, I, I, I still thought maybe he was asleep and, or something. So I turned out of the bathroom to start down the stairs to get like a pot of water to throw on him because that's how you wake people up. Um, but I stopped halfway down the stairs and I was like, he's blue. Like the water is not going to help. So I ran back upstairs and then I started to shake him pretty violently um, to try to wake him up and that wasn't working. So I called 911 and I said, you know, my partner, he's blue and I don't know what happened. Uh, please send help. When she thinks back on it, TJ recognizes that some of her choices in the moment might sound a little strange. Like, why would she run downstairs to get water to throw on her partner when he was in the bathroom to start with? But this is the chaos that ensues when something bad happens. A lot of it, in retrospect, doesn't make a ton of sense. TJ's pretty small, five foot four. Her partner, six foot one, over 200 pounds. She's still talking to the 911 dispatcher and at the same time trying to do something. She finally gets him fully rolled over to start CPR. I knew kind of the basics of like clear the air passage. So I opened up his throat and I heard him like gurgle and I was like, oh, my God, that's a good sign. And I started doing chest compressions as directed by the operator on the phone. The police and EMTs show up quickly. They want to know if TJ's partner has been doing drugs. She's like, no, of course not. It's Monday morning. He was headed for work. As the EMTs start to do their work, TJ starts trying to call her partner's mother. But she recently changed cell phones. So TJ can't get through. And the EMTs then wound up taking him out um, on a stretcher. And I had asked them, um, you know, how, what is his status And I remember this woman just looked at me and she's like, we're just trying to do everything that we can. And I knew (laughs) at that point it was not a good sign um, that, like, that's not what you want to hear. The ambulance heads to the hospital. TJ is right behind it, thanks to a ride from one of her only friends in the area. The whole ride, she is frantically trying to reach family members. I got to the hospital and I walked in and I... He said his name and asked them, you know, where is he? I, at that point, assumed that he must have been in surgery of some kind. And then that, that told me to sit down on a bench, and then a social worker came over. And that's when I also knew that it was probably not going to be very good, what I was about to hear. Um, and then they brought me into a small room, which I also knew that was really not a good place to be in. And um, they then told me they did everything they could, but they could not revive him and that he had died. Um, And I was alone. (laughs) It's like reality shattering, you know? It's like, what are you talking about? Like, (laughs) not even 12 hours ago, we were on the couch watching TV and I made chili for dinner and he was standing there talking to me and now he's dead tj was in that room by herself for about 40 minutes she called a couple of close friends her partner's boss and she was texting back and forth with his family they tried calling tj but she wouldn't pick up she knew she'd lose it and once they finally got to the hospital 
TJ realized she couldn't face them, knowing what they were about to find out. They were taken to a private room next to TJ's. And then I just heard his mother scream like I've never heard anyone scream. And that's when I was like, oh, they know. I went in and she had thrown up all over the floor. And um, yeah, and then they were just asking me what happened and I didn't have any answer for them. The hospital doctors didn't have answers either. They suspected heart trouble, but for reasons that TJ still doesn't fully understand, they didn't come up with any, even as the day dragged on. That turned into a week, two weeks, more. Um, and we would call, like, once a week asking, because, like, again, it's like, how does somebody that's, like, seemingly healthy, and he was 28 years old, like, literally dropped dead one morning. It took nine months for the autopsy report on TJ's partner to come back. He died of a brain aneurysm, but the aneurysm had apparently been caused by an undiagnosed heart condition. It slowly started to sink in that not only was her partner gone, but her future as she'd imagined it was also gone. We'd looked at places of where we wanted to get married. We had talked about like who would be in our bridal party. We had picked out what our we wanted our kids' names to be and when and how many we wanted to have. And so we weren't, like, officially engaged, but I would consider him. That's why I say that he's my partner, because that's what he was. Right after he died, this person who she had spent years planning her life with, TJ had a whole other set of decisions to make, alone, in a place that wasn't even really their home yet. The first, like, um day after um, I literally woke up screaming I didn't have any community I didn't have like an office or like a support system at all Um, and also he died in our house so I made a decision that I needed to move out of the house as soon as possible so within 10 days of his death I left our house It's now been almost two and a half years since TJ left the house. But she still thinks about her partner's death every day. I mean, the whole thing didn't feel real, you know, and it still sometimes doesn't feel real. When I saw him on the floor, like, he looked, like, a little bit blue, but I I, I mean, it didn't... I've never seen a dead person before. And he was dead on the floor. And... You know, I, I never see, I've never seen that, and I didn't really understand what to make of it. Like, how do you wake up a person who will not wake up? TJ came to us in part because she just couldn't tell her own story. It was just going to be too much. But also, as sad of a story as this is, we're not telling TJ's story today only because her partner died. We're telling it because of what happened after he died on Reddit. We'll be back. There's danger out there. 
every notification, swipe, social post, video, or selfie while driving risks your life. So while sharks might be scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. In the chaotic weeks following her partner's death, TJ moved around a lot. And money was tight. She was going from the benefits of a two-income household to navigating the world by herself. When he passed away, like, he didn't have life insurance. We barely had any savings. Like, we didn't have anything, really. I mean, he had just actually gotten to the point where he had paid off his student loans, which is so fucking sick, really. Um, That's one of the reasons why we had delayed getting married, I mean, I had to sell everything, our furniture. Um, pretty much I could just pack whatever I could fit in the back of a car, which were mainly just like clothes and some memory keepsake um, stuff and the dog. And so a lot of that life that I had seen with him um, died when I left the house. It was almost like in order to survive this awful thing, to keep her head above water, TJ had to get free of the stuff from the life she and her partner had been building together. She had to stay afloat, but she didn't know how. Because TJ was a Redditor and a really active Redditor, it seemed natural to look there for answers. I had posted, I think, in like grief support, uh, just kind of saying like, I don't know what to do. I lost my partner and I don't know how to function and somebody said oh you can go to widowers which has really been a saving grace for me in a lot of ways. Despite the name the widowers community is not just for widowers. The community describes itself as a place for anyone who's lost a companion to share and heal. There are people who lost partners years ago and there are people who lost partners hours ago. And they share all kinds of updates and questions with subject lines like, we were supposed to be married tomorrow. And when did you start eating properly again? You said the widowers community has been kind of a saving grace for you. Yeah. um, In-person widow support groups, which I attended one of, they're older people. And... It's just a different dynamic of, like, the kinds of grief, and even though they're similar, but they're also different. Whereas, like, the widower's community, it seems like most of the people in there are, like, 
younger people. And then also when people ask you the question of like, oh, are you okay? They don't really care about the answer. They don't want to hear like that you are destroyed. And in widowers, um, you can say that or you can like say a lot of different things about the process of dealing with grief that like you would never say to anyone else in your life of like, you know, oh, my in-laws are being really shitty to me or, oh, it's two in the morning and I can't sleep, um, you know, or, oh, my God, like, uh, how am I financially going to do this? I, I don't know how I'm going to make it through. Um, and people are not, you know, just being like, oh, my God, don't worry. It's going to get better. Like uh, people are just like, yeah, that sucks. Like that's happening to me right now, too. In real life, TJ was facing some tough choices. It didn't make sense for her to stay in upstate New York, so she eventually headed back to the city and settled into a tiny shoebox of a bedroom in an apartment back in Brooklyn, where she slowly started rebuilding her life. A life that looked very different than the one she'd had. And although the circumstances couldn't have been worse, she was moving forward. She was proud of herself. She decided to share her progress in a post on Reddit. My fiancé died four months ago this week. I found him. He had an, a heart attack due to an underlying but undiscovered heart condition. He was 28. In the last four months, I have moved five times. I finally found a permanent home for my dog and I two weeks ago. I bought a car. Last week, I successfully negotiated a large raise with my boss. After being with the same person for seven years, I did something very scary, and I went on a date this weekend. It went well. I am on my way to being independent again. I have a long way to go, but I am proud of me today. Why did you make that post? Sometimes I just need to express this to other people, but I don't like to do it um, in front of, I guess, people I know um, and have them all worried. It's such a it's such a strange thing where it's like you go. <laughs> One goes through a lot of their life with people not asking them directly and honestly enough, maybe, how they're doing. Mm -hmm. And then something like this happens and it's like relentless. I also don't want to seem performative to other people about yeah. it, which because I find it to be very like gross in a lot of ways. Yep. And like that's why I like Reddit, because I can be sort of anonymous. Um, I'm just a you know, user account. <laughs> On Widowers, anonymity is a gift. It's permission to say how you really feel, to ask disturbing questions. This is somewhat unique, definitely in comparison to real life, but also on the internet, which more and more is all about people building identities online. For TJ, it was the other way around, and the anonymity has been an essential part of a slow recovery. TJ's honest I am proud of me post took off. It hit the front page of Reddit. I think at the height of the post, it was like 20,000 upvotes and several hundred comments. But soon, TJ realized that internet honesty, even when you're anonymous, can backfire. First, people started commenting 
and saying like, oh, are you sure you want to be dating this soon? I was talking to my therapist at the time and I remember crying and being like, I don't know how I'm going to do it again. And also, I don't even know how. And I remember feeling very hopeless at the time. And she had encouraged me to like, why don't you, you try, why don't you try like online dating, not to meet someone, because I didn't want to meet anyone. Many of us are guilty of this thing that TJ was trying to avoid. Among people who knew what had happened to her, what had happened to her was the only topic they wanted to talk about. She wanted to move on. I just wanted to connect with someone that what was going to treat me for like two minutes like a normal person. Like I didn't have this horrible thing happen to me, but I just had to prove to myself that I could do it. Um, because it meant, I guess, that like I would survive that too. Because it didn't feel like I would. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I need to take a break. Things got worse for TJ when an anti-feminist subreddit shared her post. The people in that group wrote some pretty terrible things. Just really vicious and horrible things that I don't think anybody would ever actually say in person. You ended up deleting the post, right? Yeah, I did. Um, Why? I deleted the post because um, people started to click on my username and they saw that I had been sharing things in the widowers community and so they started following me in there and commenting things on my partner's photos I had posted pictures of us there just saying really horrific and nasty things about him and I just couldn't stand for that Even though going viral had made her miserable, TJ's involvement in the widower's community had made her some friends. Someone started responding to the trolls, sticking up for TJ. This person, who had also lost someone, was fighting some battles for her when she almost couldn't fight them herself. And that's important, because she was fighting other battles in real life. Like, for example, we had a weed open a Verizon account uh, together, and... When he passed away, you know, I owed Verizon a, over $1,000 between a we'd one back bill that we had to pay and then also, like, his cell phone. My credit is, like, in the toilet, and, like, I've been sued by debt collectors. I'm currently going through a lawsuit right now. TJ says you can look at her financial history and almost see the death of her partner. She used to pay more than she owed on her credit card bills. And then in January of 2017, her payments start to be late, then not be paid at all. One's like payment stop February, one payment stops March, one stops April. You can see like one by one the payments stop at that exact time period. It has been really hard. But for the last two and a half years, TJ has been clawing her way onto solid ground. She changed jobs to get a better paycheck. She's been working on her credit score. She's now moved out of the shoebox room and into the bigger bedroom in her New York apartment. But it's not like she's trying to forget her partner. 
She just wants to do her best to be in control of how she remembers him. You talked a little bit about how your life with your partner kind of died after he died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if there's anything in your life now that is a kind of a keepsake of that life that you had together? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have a, a painting, a fairly large painting of a Batman Abraham Lincoln. Oh, my and- God. <laughs> <laughs> that is that amazing. Is just not what I was expecting. <laughs> I okay, have a go on. <laughs> I'll send you guys a photo of it. Um, it kind of it like has that air to it, and um, we had it on our mantle above our fireplace. And I have it. I save that. I have that in my room, mm. um, and I have his student ID in my mirror, my vanity. Um, so I look at that every day because um, that's how he looked when we first met. So that reminds me of him. Um, and I have Smokey. I mean, Smokey's my biggest keepsake. Gradually, things are getting back to normal, or as normal as they can get when really nothing in your life feels normal, which is also something TJ's learned partly from Reddit's infinite compendium, which she's still using all the time. How do you feel about Reddit after this experience? I think this story shows that it can be, even though like it was horrible being harassed, I don't think that I would be able to function without, or I would have been able to function without the widower's support community. I honestly believe that. So TJ is still posting along with all of the other anonymous users, her own thoughts and feelings, and sometimes seemingly anonymous quotes and ideas. Hold on. I There's this, like, passage that I found in the, the widower's community that I think for a lot of people, that people still share it there all the time and as a way to welcome newcomers, but also I have revisited it several times, and I think it summarizes perfectly what grief is and how to process it. I don't know if I can read it for you. Yeah, please. Um, Hold on, let me see if I can find it. I've, like, sent it to other people, too, when they've, like, lost people. Um, Okay, I found it. Um, Okay, so this is how it starts. All right, here goes. I'm old, and so what that means is I've survived so far, and a lot of people I've known and loved did not. I've lost friends, best friends, co-workers, acquaintances, grandparents, my mom, relatives, teachers, mentors, students, neighbors, and a host of other folks. But here's my two cents. I wish you could say you get used to people dying. I never did. I don't want to. It tears a hole through me whenever somebody I love dies, no matter the circumstances. But I don't want it not to matter. I don't want it to become something that just passes. My scars are a testament to the love and the relationship that I had for and with that person. And if the scar is deep, so was the love. So be it. Scars are a testament to life. Scars are a testament that I can love. This passage, shared over and over across Reddit, isn't an anonymous quote just reposted on the site. Turns out it was actually written by another Redditor. 
Hello. My name on Reddit, anyway, is G Snow. Some people just call me G. G Snow doesn't want to identify himself beyond that. He says he doesn't want to direct attention away from the people his words seem to help. But he did agree to talk to us about this piece of his writing that he's famous for, even if a lot of people don't actually realize he's the one who wrote it. G Snow's a teacher, and one day he saw a post on Reddit from a user who said they were 17 and their best friend had just died. So I just kind of responded off the top of my heart. It took no more time to to write it than whatever my typing skills were. I never really intended it to be for any other audience except for that 17-year-old. It was just me writing to him or her. I don't know which. That was eight years ago. The passage has been floating around ever since, and it has taken on a life of its own. Sometimes G. Snow will open up his computer and have 40 new messages about this stream of consciousness piece of writing he did. He says he responds to every single message. We told G. Snow about his impact on TJ and how she and others in the widower's community send it to people when they first join. It's like a gift, albeit a gift to mark a sad occasion. And I have come to recognize that the the biggest gifts are the ones to somebody else but through you. And that, to me, has been kind of the redeeming element in, in dealing with grief. Somebody finds a way to take their grief and turn it into a gift to somebody else. I do believe that, that grief uh, can't be measured. Uh, being defined, uh, I, I think I would say it, it's, it's the pain felt when love gets yanked out from under us. And I don't mean love as an emotion. I mean love as a, uh, a connecting force. And when that gets yanked away, grief is the echo of that. Even with all of the thoughts he has on this topic, most of the time, G. Snow just responds privately to people who get in touch. He lets that one passage he wrote eight years ago do the talking for him. Scars are a testament to life. Scars are a testament that I can love deeply and live deeply and be cut or even gouged and that I can heal and continue to live and continue to love. And the scar tissue is stronger than the original flesh ever was. Scars are a testament to life. Scars are only ugly to people who can't see. As for grief, you'll find it comes in waves. When the ship is first wrecked, you're drowning with wreckage all around you. Everything floating around you reminds you of the beauty and the magnificence of the ship that was and is no more. And all you can do is float. You find some piece of the wreckage and you hang on for a while. Maybe it's something physical. Maybe it's a happy memory or a photograph. Maybe it's a person who is also floating. For a while, all you can do is float, stay alive. In the the beginning, beginning, the the waves waves are 100 feet tall, tall, and they crash crash over you without mercy. mercy. They come 10 seconds apart and don't even give you time to catch your breath. All you can do is hang on and float. After a while, maybe weeks, maybe months, you'll find that the waves are still 100 feet tall, but they come further apart. And when they come, they still crash all over you and wipe you out. But in between, you can breathe and you can function. 
You never know what's going to trigger the grief. It might be a song or a picture, a street intersection, the smell of a cup of coffee. It can be just about anything, and the wave comes crashing. But in between the waves, there is life. Somewhere down the line, and it's different for everyone, you find that the waves are only 80 feet tall, or 50 feet tall. And while they still come, they come further apart, and you can see them coming. An anniversary, a birthday, or Christmas, or landing at O'Hare International, you can see it coming for the most part, and you prepare yourself. And when it washes over you, you know that somehow you will, again, come out the other side, soaking wet, sputtering, Sputtering. still hang on to some tiny piece of wreckage, wreckage. but But you'll come come out. Take it from an old guy. The waves never stop coming, and somehow you don't really want them to. But you learn that you'll survive them, and other waves will come, and you'll survive them, too. And if if you're you're lucky, lucky, you'll have lots of scars scars from lots of loves loves and lots of shipwrecks. And lots of shipwrecks. That's Endless Thread from WBUR. If you like what you heard, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And this is an especially good time to subscribe because in just a few weeks, Endless Thread is launching a five-part investigative series called Madness, the secret mission for mind control and the people who paid the price. So I'll leave you today with a preview of the series, and I'll see you next week. Scratch the surface of the internet, and you will find... Conspiracies. A lot of conspiracies. Vaccines killed babies. The, the deep station designed the disease the in a secret facility. The line between fantasy and reality blurred. What if we told you? One thing a CIA is very good at is destroying evidence. One of those conspiracies was actually true. People have a hard time listening and grasping the reality of this. It shatters their belief system. What came home was a shadow, a shell of a man. I want everyone to know that I went through hell. This April, Endless Thread is back with a new series about one of the biggest open secrets in Western history. A program with one objective. They saw him confessing and they thought... Somebody else is controlling this guy's mind. A secret that changed how we fight our wars, how we heal people, how we torture, even how we free our minds. The CIA was trying to frame this as a LSD testing program. A CIA program with an unwitting ally, a doctor in Montreal with surprising methods and a whole bunch of test subjects. He was one of the leading psychiatrists in the whole world. Light deprivation, shock treatment, hallucinogenic drugs, and she lost her soul. She was a pacifist, and she was disgusted and mortified that she'd been used as a guinea pig to create human weapons of war. You know, he did have the attitude that to make an omelet, you have to crack a few eggs. And nobody's been accountable for it. Accountability is is like a ghost. Endless Thread presents Madness, the secret mission for mind control and the people who paid the price. We want justice! We New want episodes justice! coming soon. 
to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Subscribe right now to Endless Thread from WBUR and Reddit.